Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> you can find your way over to Second Peter if you'd like to do that towards the end of the Bible, about five books from the back. We'll be reading some verses there eventually. Not quite yet. Uh, we are in the midst of a teaching series right now in which I have been um, leading you through the basic beliefs and and values of our denomination, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, using the outline that, that's provided for us in the Sunday School class that we've done so many times here that we call CMA DNA, in which we invite newcomers to learn about our church, learn about our, our movement. And again, let me say what I've said to you several times, hopefully you, you believe it by now, that, that this is not just to teach you about a denomination, that's not the point of why we're doing these things, but we're, we're not simply highlighting the CNMA or anything the CNMA does, we are highlighting Jesus Christ and who he is. And this is particularly true in the first four weeks of the series where we are going through what we often call in the Alliance the fourfold gospel, the fourfold gospel being Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Sanctifier, the one who makes us holy. Last week we talked about Jesus Christ being our healer, and this week we're going to talk about the fourth element of that, which is Jesus, our coming King. Jesus, our coming King. Now, this is a huge topic, uh, and, and I, I'm sure that when I say Jesus, our coming king, all sorts of ideas and images and even expectations come to mind because you may have heard all sorts of things about the second coming of Christ. You may have read books about the second coming of Christ and of the things that surround that event. You may have seen movies about the second coming of Christ and the things that surround that event. You have all sorts of pictures in your mind, even from what we've sung today, of a rider on a white horse descending from the sky, surrounded by thousands of angels. And you may think of great battles, and you may think of trumpet blasts, and you may think of the rapture of the saints, and all sorts of other things enter your mind when you think about Christ our coming King. That's great. Um, today, I'm not going to get into the details of any of that stuff, really. We'll talk about a little bit of it, but, but I'm not going to delve too deeply into the intricacies of Christ's coming or into views on the millennium or the tribulation or any words like that. And that's because there's, there's really only one big truth that I want to drive home into your hearts today, and, and it is simply this. This is a truth, by the way, that you already believe, I think, and that I already believe, but that most of us routinely ignore as we live our lives. Here's the truth. Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth. Like in person. He's coming back. And this truth matters a lot. Um, in thinking about Bible passages that relate to Jesus, our coming King, there are many, many in the Scriptures, of course. There's one, however, that I don't hear used to preach on when we talk about Jesus, our coming King, even though it's, in some ways it's so obvious and so familiar to us that we often blow right by it. And it's in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. I don't want you to turn there. You can if you want, I suppose. But you already know the verse. And you already know the phrase that I'm going to recite to you. It simply goes like this. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Or if you like the King James, thy kingdom come. Okay? Like, now this, of course, is part of what we call the Lord's Prayer, which people all over the world, millions of people, recite every single Sunday. And so we know it well. And, and when Jesus told his disciples to include this in their prayer, that, that actually would not have seemed strange to them at all. 
The disciples would not have been surprised by that in the least because in the, in the day when Jesus was on earth back then, the Jews of that time prayed regularly and fervently for the coming of the kingdom. In fact, specifically, they prayed for the coming of the Christ. They prayed for the coming of the Messiah so that he would come back and he would establish his kingdom. It was such an important part of their prayers that some of the rabbis even, even said it like this, if you haven't prayed for the coming of Messiah's kingdom, you haven't really prayed. So the disciples were not surprised when Jesus said this. It was not a new topic to them. The weird thing for them, though, and the really even more weird from, for us from our vantage point, is I want you to think about the scene here. Who's speaking? Jesus. So you've got, you've got the king himself, who is, if you think about it, the answer to that very prayer, on earth, having come into the world, and he's been announcing for most of, the, of Matthew leading up to this, the arrival of God's kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is at hand, and yet he's still telling his disciples to pray for God's kingdom to come with the obvious assumption with a prayer like that being that it hasn't happened yet. So which is it? Is the kingdom here or is the kingdom not here? Well, what gives? How are we to understand this? Well, what is God's kingdom? At, at, at a very basic, and that's a huge topic, we spent a whole year on it a couple of, of years ago, but, but defined most simply, what would God's kingdom be? God's kingdom would be the realm in which God's rule is active and apparent. God's kingdom would be the place in which God's authority as king, has taken hold in some sort of noticeable way. And so when Jesus tells us to pray, thy kingdom come, there are all sorts of things that we can take that to mean. And there are all sorts of, of avenues of prayer that Jesus has left open to us when he says, pray for, thy, for God's kingdom to come. And we do. A lot of things, even in the here and now. I mean, you, you can pray for God's kingdom to come in your own life, and that's part that would be praying the Lord's Prayer. Pray for God's kingdom to come in your life. You, you should. Pray that God's reign, that God's authority will be made more real and more effective in your own life, in your thoughts, in your desires, in your values, in your actions, in your relationships, in the way you make decisions. That's very much a prayer for God's kingdom to come. God, your kingdom come in me. The same way when you pray for God's rule to become active in the lives of other people in your life, your family, your friends, your church, other people, you're praying for God's kingdom to come, to come. This includes when you pray, God, pray for God to intervene in miraculous ways, by the way, like we did many times last week even when we were praying for physical healing. If you pray for physical healing for someone, you're praying for God's kingdom to come, for God's authority to be exercised in the here and now in the body of the person that you're praying for. You're praying for God's kingdom to come. You're praying the Lord's Prayer. It's also important to remember that a kingdom has people in it, right? I mean, a kingdom wouldn't be a kingdom if it didn't have subjects, if it didn't have citizens, if you will. And the people who are in the kingdom of God, the people who Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, have entered the kingdom of God, are the people who are born again, those who have been given new life by the Holy Spirit, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ have new life in him. So, an important part of praying for the kingdom of God to come is to pray for non-Christians to come to Christ. Amen. Both in your life, the ones you know of personally, and around the world, that the full number of God's people would be brought into his kingdom. That's also praying for the kingdom of God. And of course, you're also praying for God's kingdom to come when you pray for the world around us, when you pray for the news, when you pray for Israel today after what happened the other day. 
When you pray for things here on earth to change and to be more as God would have them. When you pray for the reduction of crime and poverty in your city. When you pray for our laws to be just and to reflect godly principles. When you pray for wise and courageous men and women to be brought into positions of leadership. When you pray for an end to war and famine and other tragedies in the world that happen. You're praying for God's kingdom to come. You're praying for his will and for his reign to be made manifest to show up in the here and now. All of those things are praying for the kingdom of God and they should all be a part of our prayer life. But let's not leave out the most plain and natural interpretation of Jesus' words here. Jesus, many, many times in his ministry, referred to his kingdom as being in the future. In the future. He talked about a time when the Son of Man would come into his kingdom. At the Lord's Supper, he told his disciples, he said, I won't drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. He told multiple parables looking forward to a time when the king would return to receive his kingdom. So there's very definitely a future dimension to the kingdom of God. And virtually every New Testament scholar agrees that one of the main thrusts, if not the main thrust, of Jesus' instruction for us to pray for God's kingdom to come is to pray for it to come in its final form, in its completeness. And for us today, For us today, while we live in what some have called the overlap of the ages or the now and not yet, the kingdom's here but it's not here, it's it's, it's partially here, we live in this world where we've got the beginnings of of God's rule but not the final and climactic version of it. In, in in, In the place where we are, that prayer for God's kingdom to come is a prayer for Jesus to come back as he said he would. We pray for that and how we need him to come back, right? In the immortal words of Sebastian the Crab, the human world, it's a mess. It is. But there is a time coming when the king will come back to reign on earth in person. And at that time, wars will cease. Crying will be no more. Hunger and poverty will no longer exist. Famine and floods and earthquakes will be unknown. Crying, heartache, and pain will be a thing of the past. Illness will be no more. And death itself will be banished forever, never to return. That's the kingdom of God. And I need to tell you that that time is not going to be ushered in gradually. The onset of God's kingdom will be sudden even cataclysmic. When you read the prophecies in places like Daniel and Revelation, not to mention the words of Jesus himself in the Gospels, what you find is that the idea that some people have that the world would just keep getting better and better because of technology and science and everything, and the more we figure things out, mankind will just, will just achieve and, and will we'll fix things and everything will get better. So the world's on an upward trajectory. Or, in the Christian sense, maybe it goes like this, that the church will someday become so successful and so influential that that we'll just transform the whole world. So that at the end of history, what we can do, we can just celebrate our victory and we can roll out the red carpet for Jesus to come back. That's not what's going to happen. It's not what's going to happen. The world that Jesus returns to, according to Scripture, will be a world of chaos and turmoil, a world that is profoundly messed up, a world that will not welcome him because it does not want him to come back as king, even though that world will be on the verge of destroying itself without him. 
And so, yes, we pray for change in our world. We pray for the gradual advance of kingdom witness and kingdom righteousness and for more people to come into the kingdom. We pray that. And we do see answers. We do see answers. The kingdom does grow. But the ultimate answer to this prayer that that Jesus tells us to pray will not come until he returns in person to set up the final form of his kingdom. And let me tell you again, this is going to happen. I know it sounds silly to keep saying that because you know it, but it's going to happen. History is not an endless cycle of repetition. History is headed toward a climactic event, and that climactic event is the return of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to the earth. But I think sometimes, and here's why I keep saying it, I guess, it's hard for us to process that information and to live in that reality because, let's face it, it's been 2,000 years. Right? I mean, Jesus said 2,000 years ago, I'm coming back. We're still waiting at the bus stop. He's not here yet. And so the temptation for us is to kind of neglect this teaching, kind of shelve it, and then not think about it a whole lot. And there's a passage in the Bible that, that talks about this very problem and this very tendency that we have, and it's in 2 Peter chapter 3. So go ahead over to chapter 3 if you've got Second Peter here. I'm going to read to you verses 3 to 13. Second Peter 3, starting in verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, Peter says, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day has a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. These verses, they picture the last days as a time when people are basically making fun of Christians because we keep clinging to this ridiculous hope that Jesus is going to come back. And so they mock. The spirit of the age seems to say this, that there is no way that God will intervene because God just doesn't do that. Ever since the days of our fathers, ever since the days of creation, things have gone on just like they're going on and they're never going to change. God doesn't intervene. And of course, that spirit is very alive today, right? I mean, ever since the age of enlightenment, we call it, when the scientists first began to discover the laws of nature that govern things like the weather patterns and, and the motion of the planets and the turn of the seasons and all that, the idea has arisen that if there is a God, if there's a God, he's not really actively involved in his creation. 
He's more or less, you know, the divine clockmaker who designed nature according to certain laws, and then he wound the whole thing up, and he started it ticking so that it would run on its own. And so, in this case, the universe is basically, you know, sort of self-sustaining. It doesn't need any direct attention from God. And we understand that those laws are real. Yes, scientists have discovered truth about how God built the world and how things work. But the upshot of thinking that God will never intervene, that he doesn't intervene, that he's not personally involved or intimately involved in any way with this creation, is that we can count on things pretty much staying the same. You know, I mean, nothing's really going to change. Seasons come, seasons go, blah, blah, blah. You know, God, God just doesn't intervene. That's not the way he works. He is keeping his distance. He is staying out of our affairs. That's just the way he rolls. Peter says, yeah, that sounds really familiar because that's exactly what people were saying when the rain started to fall in the time of Noah. That's their attitude. Just because God hadn't directly intervened in human affairs in a long time didn't mean it wasn't going to happen. And the day of the Lord did come. The rain did fall. The world changed suddenly and dramatically. And Peter says, it's going to happen again one day. Jesus is coming back. Amen. You know, it's kind of ironic. Second Peter 3 is working out maybe differently today than, than you thought it might. Because there are a lot of people today talking about the end of the world. There are, it's just not the Christians, for the most part, right? Because we get kind of embarrassed. We don't want to be seen as the weirdos who are out there on the street with a placard saying the end is near. So we don't talk about it a whole lot. The people talking about the end of the world today are the ones who are convinced the planet is in grave danger from climate change. Those are the ones that are talking about Armageddon in our time, right? And I'm not here today to talk to you about the reality of climate change or, heaven forbid, the politics of climate change which would be counterproductive for any number of reasons. But I will make an observation. You know, a lot of those climate protesters, you know that they believe what they're saying, right? How do you know? Because they're trying to do something about it. A lot of them are. They're, they're marching. They're lobbying. They're pushing for regulations. They're shopping for sustainability. They're driving hybrids and electric cars. Not all of them. Some of them are just blowing smoke, okay? But, but some of them, the ones who really believe... It changes how they act. It changes their choices. It changes their life. So here's the question. If Christians really believed that Jesus was coming back to this earth, that the king was returning to set things right, to bring justice on the earth, and to reign in person, and that this is going to happen on a particular date, not a date that we know, but there is a date. There is a year, a month, and a day for this, folks, when Jesus will once again set foot on the earth. If we Christians really believe that, would it change anything in how we act or how we talk or how we think or how we pray? Should it change anything? Should it change anything? If your spouse went on a long trip for an extended period of time, away from the house, okay, what would the house look like while he or she was gone? I'm not talking to all of you now, but I'm thinking that some of you may have a little bit of a tendency to, shall we say, let things go a little bit, okay? This happened to me back in July. It was only two weeks. Um, I was alone in the house for two weeks, and I'm not the world's most OCD housekeeper, okay? But believe it or not, I was pretty careful about the house. Why? Well, because I, I knew that when the master of the house returned... I was going to have to give an account. And, and by the way, if I didn't know the day that the master was coming back, but it could happen at any time, I think I would have been even more careful, right? 
Brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us most famously in 2 Corinthians 5, but other places as well, that when Jesus comes back, we, all of us, are going to have to give an account of what we've done while he was gone and why our life looks the way it does when we meet him. So if that's the case, what are we supposed to be doing? What is the answer that he's looking for? What are our responsibilities? Well, Jesus does not leave us without instructions. In fact, he talks about this very extensively in two chapters of Scripture, in particular, Matthew 24 and 25. And in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus basically uses a series of four parables to do this. And we obviously don't have time to talk about four whole parables today. So I'm just going to summarize them for you. And if you want a homework assignment, go to Matthew 24 and 25, look up these four parables, and then figure it out for yourself and and see exactly what's going on here. First, there's the parable of the unfaithful servant. And in that parable, Jesus warns especially those who hold leadership roles in his kingdom not to mistreat those under their care, but to feed them and care for them. Then Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins, where Jesus tells us to to keep our lanterns burning, to make sure that we're walking in the power of the Spirit, keeping ourselves pure from sin, keeping our devotion alive strong and sharp and abiding in Christ for when he comes back. Then he tells us the parable of the talents, in which we learn that Jesus expects us to be about his business while he's gone, using the gifts and resources that he's given us to expand his kingdom And not to take what he's given us and hide it in the ground or just keep it all to ourselves. But to be able to tell him that we've made some progress when he returns. And then finally, maybe the most famous one, the parable of the sheep and the goats. In which Jesus reminds us that if we really believe he's coming back, we will care about the poor, the hungry, and the people in prison. And we will be doing something to help them when Jesus comes back. Oh, only to find that the whole time when we thought we were helping those people, we were also helping him. And the way Jesus phrases these parables is actually kind of scary because he indicates that the ones who are doing these things, the ones who are living as if they really believe he's coming back, are the ones who are his true followers. But there is one more thing to keep in mind. There's one more very important element of Christ's second coming that we need to consider, and this is a teaching that, to get back to our denomination a little bit, a teaching that the Christian Missionary Alliance has stressed more than perhaps any other group of Christians that's out there. Looking closely at 2 Peter 3, verse 9, Peter says that one reason that Jesus has waited so long to come back is that God is being patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. I want to make two comments on this verse. First of all, I hope you realize that shows us God's heart. It shows us God's compassionate heart. Some of you, upon encountering those parables Jesus told back in Matthew 24 and 25, they get kind of harsh and demanding sounding, and they even sound almost like a kind of salvation by works, right? Like we become Christians by using our gifts or by helping the poor or by living holy lives. But that's actually looking at things in the wrong order. Here's the right order. God did not want you to go into a horrible eternity without him. On the contrary, he wanted you to have a relationship with him and to enjoy his presence forever. That was his heart for you. And so out of compassion, 
out of his love and compassion, he sent Jesus Christ to die in your place and to rise again, to put away your guilt and your sin forever so you could be forgiven and become a new person. And he invites you to repent. He invites you to repent. He invites you to turn away from your sin and your self-reliance and to stop trying to save yourself and rule your own life and justify your own existence by your own set of rules, whatever that might be. And instead to turn to Jesus Christ as your salvation to receive the gift he freely gives. God is patient. He is loving. He is compassionate. That's his heart. That's what he wants for you and for everybody else. And because of God's patience, it says he's waited a very long time. And he's given us every opportunity possible to respond to his love. But he doesn't stop there. You see, when you say yes, when you come to Christ, when you become a believer, Jesus actually, he doesn't just save you, he comes to live inside of you by the Holy Spirit. We, we talked about this two weeks ago. And the better that you know him, the more his spirit prevails in your life, the more you will share his heart the more you will share his heart, his heart for holiness, his heart for worship, his heart for the church, his heart for the poor, his heart for the lost, and his heart for the nations. The other thing that you will notice if you look carefully at verse 9 is the word you. God is being patient with y'all. Well, who is you? Well, it could just be kind of a general thing about God's patience, but, but if you take it, you know, if you look at the word itself, the letter was written to Christians. Is God perhaps being patient with Christians in some area? What is he waiting for us to do? And why in verse 12 does it say that we can actually hasten the day, or as your NIV might put it, speed his coming? Is there something we can do to make Jesus come back sooner? Well, what's that all about? Wouldn't you like to know? Back in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, Jesus had just risen from the dead. And he's hanging out with his disciples, and the disciples are still completely and utterly confused about the timing of things and about what's going on. Because Jesus, when he came, he started preaching, and he started his whole ministry by saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. He said to the, 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 the religious leaders in Israel one time, the kingdom of God is among you. So the kingdom was at hand. And then he had come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, just a few weeks before Acts 1, and, and he was riding that donkey, and the people of the city were shouting to him, Hosanna to the King of Israel. And so if you're the disciples, you're like, here it is. This is it. Finally, the time has come when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and this, he's inaugurating the kingdom right now. But then three nights later, Jesus took them up on the top of the Mount of Olives, overlooking the city of Jerusalem, and he said, it's not what you think, because in, in one generation, this whole thing's going to be wiped out. There won't be a brick standing. There won't be one stone on another in this temple here. And now the disciples are really freaked out. What, what are you talking about, Jesus? And they say, well, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that these things are going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? Now, they didn't understand Jesus coming as him rising from the dead and coming back you know, on a horse with angels and all that. They, 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 were, they wanted to say, when are you going to be king? When is your reign coming? When is the kingdom starting? And then he died. But then he rose again. So now Jesus is back from the dead in Acts chapter 1. And so the disciples are now, he just beat death. Wow, surely this is the time for the kingdom, right? And so in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, they turn to Jesus and they say, Jesus, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom? Like, is it finally time to Israel? And then Jesus says, well, 
it's not for you to know the times that the Father has set by his own authority. However, I have some news for you. You are about to receive a power that you have never had before. And it's going to blow you away. And when you get that power, you're going to be my witnesses, not just here in Jerusalem, not just here in Israel, not just in the surrounding areas of Samaria, although you're going to have to go to all those places, but you're going to be my witnesses in every nation on earth. And then he immediately ascended into heaven. And while they're standing there with their mouths hanging open, an angel comes up to them and says, why are you staring up into heaven? He's coming back, just like he said. But he had just given them their assignment, hadn't he? To me, this is the clearest indication in the Bible that when we finish the work that he has given us to do, Jesus will come back. I think it's probably that simple. And A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, also thought that. One day, he, was, he had preached a, a message on the second coming of Christ, and he was asked by a reporter if, he knew, if, if Simpson knew when Jesus was coming back. And Simpson said, yes. And the reporter said, well, will you tell me? He said, I'll tell you if you promise to print it exactly the way I say it. And then he quoted Matthew 24, 14. That's all he did. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Do we want his kingdom to come? Do we want Jesus to come back? Then we have to get the gospel to the nations. So what does that mean for your life and mine sitting here in a sanctuary in North Carolina, which is not exactly the home of a lot of unreached people? How does it affect us? First of all, how does it affect the way we pray? Let me ask, let me ask you, does, does your entire prayer life seem to revolve around you, your family, your church, and the needs of the people around you? Now, that's, those are good prayers. There's nothing wrong with them. Absolutely need to pray those things. But if that's where it stops, then you're praying what theologian John Stott refers to as village prayers to a village God. When I first read that, I said, ouch. Is your God a village God, or is he the God of the nations? To pray for Christ's kingdom to come, and for that matter, to pray for Jesus himself to come back, is to pray for the gospel to advance in places on this earth where it is not yet known, and for the church to be planted in places where it does not yet exist. There are still thousands of people groups in this world who have no meaningful access to the gospel, no way to hear from anyone in their people group in their ethno-linguistic cultural group, or maybe even in their language, what Jesus has done to save them. If you want to pray for some of these people, or if you want to pray for some of the missionaries who are trying to reach them, the Alliance has dozens, maybe hundreds of opportunities for you. So please come and see me or see Pastor Wes. He's not just our youth pastor, he's also our missions pastor. And we can let you know how to find those opportunities and how to get involved in them and get in touch with some of these workers. How does it affect the way you pray? Secondly, how does it affect the way you give? Are you financially supporting the spread of the gospel around the world in any way? 
Again, there are tons of opportunities. Here at First Alliance, we have the, the Alliance's Great Commission Fund. We have the FAC Missions Fund. We have several homegrown missionaries who are serving in different places. But let me encourage you to ask yourself one question about your giving. And all those, all those are all excellent ways to give, okay? But ask this question too. How much of my money is going to reach the unreached peoples of the world? The Alliance is not the only game in town when it comes to reaching the unreached, but I will tell you this. We do have a lot of workers in some of the hardest places on earth, and we do church planting among them as well as anybody. Again, Pastor Wes is a great resource, and our church website is a great resource. The Alliance website, cmalliance.org, is a great resource. Start putting some of your money to work if you want the kingdom to come. Start putting some of your resources to work to extend gospel access to people who don't yet have it. And then how does it affect the way you make plans? Do you think God would ever send you to the mission field in any capacity? Short term, long term? Do you think God might ever lead you to partner in some way with an organization that is trying to reach the unreached in some sort of an extended relationship? Do you, do you ever think that God would call one of your children into world missions? Is that on your radar? Would that be a good thing? Or would it mess up your plans for them? And then lastly, how does it change the way you look at the world, how you look at history, and how you read the news? As you worry and fret about the state of the world today and how everything seems to be going off the rails, are you keeping in mind that history, not just Bible history, but secular history, that's all the same, right? It's history. History is headed for a climactic moment, the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. And that day is coming probably sooner than you imagine. And there is a year, a month, and a day that is determined. Are you ready? Are you working? Are you doing your part to bring back the king? Amen. It's a privilege we have. Let's pray as the worship team comes.